He is without equal. Among his many names, Alpha, Omega, Creator, Good Shepherd, and Word Made Flesh. What do these names tell us about Jesus the Christ? How will they make a difference in your spiritual journey? He is, after all, the creator of the land and the focal point of the book. Coming up, we'll look at some of Jesus' awesome names and what they mean. So join us now for The Land and the Book. Our host is the one and only Dr. Charlie Dyer, an Old Testament scholar, a lifelong student of the Middle East. I'm John Geiger, and as always, Charlie, lots to talk about in the Middle East. Oh, we never lack for anything to discuss when it comes to the Middle East, John, and it's great being with you. So let's dig into our first story. The U.S. decision to pull our military forces out of Afghanistan continues to unnerve allies in the Middle East. What are their specific concerns, and are they justified? Well, there really are three main concerns. Uh, One is that the pullout's part of a larger U.S. pivot away from involvement and leadership in the Middle East. Their second concern is that in making that pivot, The U.S. will abandon its allies in the region, leaving them to face the challenges alone. And the third concern is that the power vacuum being left by our departure could be filled by either Russia, Turkey, or Iran, all of whom harbor ambitions to rebuild lost empires. Uh, The U.S. is publicly denying it's planning to abandon its commitments to the region, but the pullout from Afghanistan is something tangible that speaks louder than any press release or public statement we might make. Another example of why our allies are so concerned recently took place in Saudi Arabia. You know, the Saudis are under threat of continuing drone attacks by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. And yet, over the past several weeks, the U.S. has removed its most advanced missile defense system and Patriot batteries from Saudi Arabia. Hmm. Uh, this has been seen as a signal by countries in the Gulf that the U.S. is not as committed to the area as it was in the recent past. And a planned visit by our U.S. Defense Secretary to Saudi Arabia was canceled by what U.S. officials called a scheduling problem. Well, that was also seen as a sign of flagging U.S. commitment to the region. Now, while Russia and Turkey are working to fill that void being left by the U.S., Iran seems to pose a more immediate threat. Sitting just across the Persian Gulf from Saudi Arabia, the Iranians are working hard to build an arc of Shiite influence all the way from Iran to the Mediterranean. And that includes supporting the Assad regime in Syria, helping arm Hezbollah in Lebanon, and supporting and arming the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Sunni Arab Gulf states and Israel view Iran as the biggest threat to the region, and now it feels to them as if they'll be facing that threat while receiving less support from the United States. Well, speaking of Iran, the International Atomic Energy Agency reports that Iran has quadrupled its stock of 60% enriched uranium since May. Boy, how serious a threat is this to the stability of the Middle East in general and to the security of Israel in particular? Yeah, the nuclear threat from Iran is continuing to grow at an alarming pace. They have been rapidly expanding their stockpile of enriched uranium. One estimate said that Iran was only a month away from having enough uranium stockpiled to build a nuclear weapon. Now, that report needs to be read carefully. It isn't saying they'll actually have a nuclear weapon in a month, just that they could have enough uranium processed at a high level that could eventually let them push through to build a bomb. They would still need to finish enhancing that uranium, and they need to work on the other components for a bomb, as well as work out all the logistics for being able to deliver a weapon, uh, possibly mounted on a missile. And it's likely Iran won't make a dash toward becoming a nuclear power until they have enough enriched uranium to build several nuclear weapons. But for Israel and the other Gulf states, it's a serious threat. 
The theological beliefs of Iran's conservative leaders include a belief in a worldwide conflagration before the arrival of the Mahdi, their Islamic messiah. Israel and the Gulf states recognize that should Iran get the bomb, they're far more likely to use it than an atheistic country like North Korea because of Iran's deeply held religious beliefs. Israel is threatening to attack Iran should they get close to crossing that nuclear threshold. Now, part of that threat is intended to pressure Iran to return to the bargaining table on a renewed nuclear deal with the U.S. And I suspect part of the pressure is also intended to get the U.S. to push for a tougher deal that moves Iran away from that nuclear threshold. But I also believe Israel is preparing for such an attack. As they showed when they bombed the nuclear reactors in Iraq and Syria in the past, they won't hesitate to eliminate what they see as a threat to their very existence. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar, is joining us in a look at current events throughout the entire region. Story number three, archaeologists claim that pottery finds in Israel show the rise of a new culture in Judah following the Assyrian invasion during the time of King Hezekiah. So what effect did that invasion have on the country and how was it reflected in the pottery? Yeah, this is a fascinating study, though not necessarily in the way it was reported in the press. Archaeologists have done new research on dozens of pottery vessels from before and after the time of the Assyrian invasion of Judah in 701 BC. They specifically studied jars that had seal impressions stamped on the handles. Uh, they're referred to as lamellic seals, which means belonging to the king, and they were used for commercial purposes and tax collection. Now, the archaeologists looked at two different types of seal impressions. Those from the 9th and 8th centuries had the Hebrew word lamellic stamped on them, while jar handles from the 7th century had a rosette. But the archaeologists actually performed advanced morphological shape analysis on the jars using 3D scanning. In doing so, they were able to detect differences between vessels that otherwise might look identical to the human eye. They discovered what they're calling a new ceramic tradition, completely separated from the previous one that developed after the time of the Assyrian invasion. Now, as to who the group and culture were that were responsible for the change, well, they said that had to remain open. In other words, they suggested that some new culture took over in Judah following the Assyrian conquest, but they can't determine who it is. Hmm. Well, I personally think there's a relatively simple answer that's found in the Bible and Assyrian written sources. The Bible doesn't picture an Assyrian conquest of Judah, uh, you know, in the same way the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. But the Bible does clearly picture an Assyrian invasion of Judah during the time of King Hezekiah. Uh, 2 Kings 18 and Isaiah 36 say that in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib king of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Sennacherib also left a record of that attack. He says he captured 46 strong-walled cities, countless villages, and took away as prisoners 200,150 Judeans. So what people would have been taken away? Well, when the Babylonians attacked Judah more than a century later, 2 Kings 24 says they took as prisoners all the craftsmen and artisans. That is, they took as prisoners the skilled laborers of Judah. Now, could the Assyrians have done the same thing a century earlier? Well, the discovery of subtle changes in the way pottery was made could reflect the reality that almost overnight, a generation of skilled artisans were stripped from the land, forcing others to try to learn the trade. Now, archaeology can help reveal changes in pottery, but it takes the written record, especially the Bible, to help explain why such a sudden change might have happened. 
Charlie, how likely is it, you think, that in the months and maybe years ahead, they will have a bit more definitive understanding of this question in discussion now? Well, sadly, I don't think it's going to help that much. And here's the reason why. They don't uh, appreciate the biblical record, the written record, as being historical. Uh, They like the ceramics. They like what they find in excavations. But those finds can only take someone so far. They can recognize there's a difference. But apart from the written record or without the written record, there's no reason why that difference occurred. Hmm. I think the Bible is what provides the answer. Sadly, the archaeologists are somewhat reluctant to go to the biblical sources to find that answer. Well, from the very ancient to the very modern, an Israeli company unveiled an electric battery that can recharge in 10 minutes. Wow. What impact could this have on the electric car industry, Charlie? You know, John, this could be huge. Uh, The Israeli company is called StoreDot, that is S-T-O-R, capital D-O-T. And the battery they've developed uses the design format that's favored by global car makers, including Tesla. Uh, This battery is the world's first silicon-dominant battery which can be recharged in minutes. Now, they've spent years developing the battery with the stated goal of having it be able to fully recharge in 10 minutes. Uh, They're currently working on setting up a production line in China with Eve Energy, their manufacturing partner. They're also in advanced discussions with several global automakers to supply the batteries, and they expect to begin full production in 2024. The company is also working on ultra-fast charging batteries for mobile phones and even for scooters. Now, if electric cars are going to come into wide use, it will require the ability to charge a car about as quickly as one can now fill a car with gas. And someday soon, that could become a reality. Thanks to Store Dot, another company from Amazing Israel. And that's a look at current events in the Middle East region. I'm John Gaker with our host Charlie Dyer saying there's lots more to come today, including what the names of Jesus mean to you, a segment of questions that have come in from our listeners. Plus, Charlie Dyer's devotional is coming up. Where are you going today, Charlie? Well, John, we're going to start a new seven-part series on the seven churches in Revelation, and today we're going to be visiting the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. So a full program all ahead. Meanwhile, we want to point you to our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can learn about past programs, hear them again, about today's guest, and a whole lot more. It's there at thelandandthebook.org. Also, we love it when we get email from you, hearing how God is using the program in your life to maybe help you understand a particular passage or offer you an insight into a Sunday school lesson you're teaching. Here's how you connect thelandandthebook at moody.edu the land and the book at moody.edu. What the names of Jesus mean to you, next on The Land and the Book. It's the most important question anyone could ask. Who is Jesus? The answer is wrapped up in his many names. Beloved Son, Good Shepherd, Emmanuel, Man of Sorrows. Every single one of those names tells us something unique about this one the scriptures call the resurrection and the life. Doesn't it make sense then that we should spend a lifetime pursuing the meaning and nuances of Christ's many names? Well, we're about to embark on a journey looking at some of the 66 great names and titles for Jesus. But before we set sail, let's first pause for some great ideas on sharing our lives, our faith, with our Jewish friends. When you and I are talking about Yeshua with our Jewish friends, it can get uh, heated real quickly. 
But what if we were to focus that discussion on the deity of Messiah in the pages of the Old Testament? Let's join Dr. Michael Rydelnik for some thoughts. Well, yeah, I think that's so crucial. So often I was not taught as a Jewish kid growing up in Brooklyn that the Messiah would be God. He was just going to be a great human being. But I was really struck when I studied Isaiah 9, 6. So a woman actually challenged me with that. And it says, for unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. If he's born, he's actually human. Mm -hmm. But then it says, and his names or his titles shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. When we look at those four throne titles, it's indicating a king who is not just a human, but he is divine. He is deity. Uh, He is the God-man. And so that's always shocking when Jewish people see that. That's not the kind of Messiah we were were expecting. We should have been expecting Mm. the God-man, and he did come, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Well, Yeshua is found throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and you'll find encouragement in the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Check it out for yourself from Moody Publishers. This is The Land and the Book. Paul Kent is a longtime editor who has also written several books, including Know Your Bible, Bible Curiosities, and Playing with a Purpose, Baseball Devotions. He and his family live in Ohio's Amish country. Paul loves the Bible, history, and trivia, and writes on each as the Spirit leads. In his day job, Paul edits books for other writers. He and his wife have adopted three children. And here on The Land and the Book, we're looking together at his book, Who is Jesus? 66 Great Names and Titles Explained and Applied. So let me start by saying welcome to The Land and the Book, Paul. Thank you, John. Good to talk to you this morning. So at the risk of sounding sacrilegious, what's the big deal here, Paul? We, we, we know Jesus. We love Jesus. Why should we be concerned with 66 of his names? I just think that Jesus is the uh, most uh, important character in all of human history, in, in all of uh, the, the universe's history, obviously. Uh, you know, as Christians, I, I think we know that and we believe that, but sometimes it's easy to just kind of overlook that. I think when you talk about the names and titles of Jesus, this is just a great way to understand him more. He, he's far beyond us, and yet uh, there are a lot of things we can look to to learn mm-hmm. more about him. I suspect much of the significance of this conversation is lost on many of us because in our world, names don't mean as much. Uh, we tend to choose names that sound cool. <laughs> you know, there's a real trendiness factor to names, especially these days. But in the ancient Middle East, they chose names that were very thoughtful. They were often uh, prophetic, defining the life arc of a person. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you go through the Bible, and uh, there are far more than 66 names, that was just the the number we chose to uh, fit into this small book. But, uh, you know, you have everything from Almighty uh, to Alpha and Omega. Uh, Going down through the the alphabet, there's Creator, Crucified, um, Emmanuel, which we, we know means God with us. In this particular list of the 66, it goes all the way through the way, the truth, and the life, and the word. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, each of those titles and names will really help you understand Jesus when you dig into them a little bit. And and the Bible provides a lot of background material on, on each one. Paul Kent loves the Bible, history, trivia, and he writes on each as the Spirit leads. In his day job, Paul edits books for other writers. Our focus today on the land and the book, Who is Jesus? It's a small book, and I like that uh, because I can dig into these 66 names without investing, you know, hours on each one. A lot of variety. It moves along, and we're looking at some of these names today on the land and the book. 
Paul, I want you to share with us one of the least used names of Jesus and why you love it. Well, that's a good question, actually. As I'm skimming through the list here, I would think maybe something like uh, the, the rider on the white horse. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, that's coming out of the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with uh, the, the phrase, or the, the listeners might be familiar with that. I, I just think it's such a beautiful image. Uh, according to the book here, uh, the, the way we've set this up, the, the first section is in 10 words or less. And uh, just the summary statement is Jesus will someday return to earth as a conquering king. And uh, I think the, the purpose, uh, the, the last section in that entry is just so what, uh, the takeaway is that Jesus was once humbled so that he and we with him would ultimately be honored. You know, he, he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, but uh, he's coming back on, on a white stallion one of these days. Yeah, you, you write in your details, please, section on his last journey to Jerusalem to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy, Jesus rode into the city meek and sitting upon a donkey and a colt, a foal of, a, of an ass. Matthew 21, 5, but a day is coming when he will be anything but meek returning to earth on a white war horse, bent on conquest. Boy, that is an entirely different picture than, than the meek and mild Jesus that many of us have come to love. It really is. And of course, you know, we, we love the meek and mild yes. Jesus. He's the one who reaches out and welcomes us to salvation. But uh, there is a day coming. He's going to be the king. He's going to make everything right. And uh, certainly I would hope that uh, somebody who, who's reading this book or even hearing this interview would consider Jesus for who he is and make sure that, uh, you know, we, we have accepted that invitation that, that he offers. Well, one of the important, I think, uh, aspects or reasons for this book, Who is Jesus, is the discussion that we've sort of fallen into here. You know, we love the meek and mild Jesus, but we forget that's one facet of Jesus. He is also Jesus the judge, Jesus the righteous, Jesus the one who stands at the gates of heaven. And, and uh, those are sobering thoughts. You know, it's not all teddy bear Jesus. That's true. And uh, I do think, you know, we talk about the fear of God and, uh, you know, whether that is in a reverential respect of some sort, or it's actually uh, being afraid of him, that there are aspects, I think, of both of those. But God wants us to have that respect for him, that the fear, the afraid part maybe draws us uh, to him, to the the other side of that. You mentioned judge there, and uh, in the entry for judge, the, the so what takeaway uh, of the book just says deep down we we know we're accountable to god mm-hmm. for our sin but through jesus we have the opportunity to be forgiven and when judgment day comes we can rest assured that it's his perfection that covers all of our failures as you did this study i'm, I'm curious were there any names that you had never previously encountered and if so uh, what struck you Well, that is a good question, too. I I do think because we had to uh, thin down the list to 66, we we took some of the more familiar ones, probably. We we emphasized ones that might be a little better known. Mm -hmm. But I I will say, uh, you know, just a a term like stone, uh, I thought was an interesting uh, name for Jesus. Uh, I think many of us know him as the rock, but uh, there are also uh, mentions of stone, uh, sometimes the cornerstone that, that uh, Peter mentioned, um, a chosen, uh, a living stone, I should say, disallowed of men, but chosen of God and precious. So again, uh, there's so many titles and so many names, and they give you so many angles on the life of Jesus that it really is a, a fascinating study. 
Well, having done this uh, rather exhaustive look at, at 66 of the names of Jesus, what are two or three favorite names of Jesus that maybe you now refer to regularly that perhaps you didn't so much before? It is a familiar one, but I, I love the, the term Alpha and Omega mm. uh, in modern terms. You know, we would just say A to Z. Jesus is kind of everything from beginning to end. And uh, I think the, the takeaway for me on that, since Jesus is the beginning and the end of everything, he, he knows the beginning and the end of everything. So whatever might trouble me or trouble you or, or anybody who's listening, it's completely within his knowledge and his power. You know, most anybody who's been to Sunday school for any amount of time knows Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But when you look through the balance of the Bible, you see that God uh, is working through Jesus to create things. And uh, I think the, the takeaway for that is that if Jesus could create us, and he did, then he can recreate us, and he will if, if we just ask. So, 2 Corinthians 5.17 would indicate that uh, he has the power to correct and fix and heal anything that we need in our lives and, and can make us completely new. You know, you mentioned Jesus as creator, which uh, for some reason I find very comforting, the thought that he was there at the beginning. And yet uh, he came to earth and the creator walked among his creation. And uh, I, I wonder if there were any moments, not recorded in Scripture certainly, if he said to himself, as he did uh, in the Genesis account, he looked out at the mountains maybe, he, you know, he looked at little babies or something, and he said, that's very good. That's very good. He did it at the time of creation. I'm just wondering if walking among his creation, he said or thought those same things. What do you think? You know, I, I bet he did. I, I think that's a great idea that you're mentioning there. I I know that I've read in uh, Oswald Chambers, uh, he, he's the man behind My Utmost for His Highest, he once said that uh, God's creation is a pleasure to God himself, mm. and he takes pleasure when we take pleasure. And so uh, I just have to think that uh, as a human being walking this earth, uh, as you say, I bet Jesus himself really enjoyed that. Paul Kent is a longtime editor who has written, Who is Jesus? 66 Great Names and Titles Explained and Applied. I, I wonder... You know, you think about Jesus walking our earth, and it's no secret that he definitely had a preferred name for himself, Son of Man. I wonder why you think he chose this name, Paul. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of references to him being the Son of God, which is absolutely true. I think by saying Son of Man, though, he's just, uh, he, he's aligning himself with us. We're all born to human beings, and uh, he was... Uh, born to Mary. He, he was clearly the Son of God by the uh, the involvement of the Holy Spirit, but he was a son of mankind as well. And uh, he experienced the things we experience. He uh, suffered hunger and thirst and tiredness. And I pick up from the Scripture sometimes even a little uh, frustration, maybe with uh, his disciples and, and the other people around him. So I think that's just a way that he really... Um, he really makes us understand that he does understand us. Scripture says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. You know, the Bible could have said at the appearance of Jesus, at the power of Jesus, but it doesn't. It says at the name of Jesus. What does this tell us about the significance of Messiah's many names? Well, as you mentioned earlier, I just think that the names of the Bible have meaning and have purpose to them. There, There is uh, much more than just a, a brief identifier. So 
Um, you know, God is bound up in his names. He tells us who he is and his qualities and his attributes and characteristics. So I, I think when we really get the full picture of Jesus, uh, Jesus implying Savior, but then all of these other names and titles uh, giving the, the big full picture of who he is, uh, hopefully that really brings us to a point of, of appreciating and, and uh, honoring him. Well, you use the word Savior, and I have to go to that. The angel appears to Joseph, this is before Christ is, is born on earth, and tells him, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name was very important. Why does the significance of this scene, I think, sometimes underwhelm us? I, I don't think we quite get it. I, I think anything having to do with the Christmas story, it, it's so familiar, and we've We've made it cute and we've made mm. it fluffy. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, I just think that that's one of the dangers of, of over-familiarity. Um, I would agree with you that an angel coming down and mentioning that this baby is going to save the world from sins, I mean, that, that's a pretty awesome uh, implication there, and, and maybe we do overlook that too quickly. In 30 seconds, how do we keep from merely plowing through this study of Christ's names with the end result that we merely accrue more information without real transformation. Yeah, that is the danger for uh, all of us as Christians, I think. Sometimes we, we look at the faith as a checklist. Uh, mm-hmm. hey, hey, I got my Bible reading done. I've done this. <laughs> um, I, I would hope certainly that, uh, that as we look through these things, and especially reading the additional scriptures, uh, there, there's always a list of verses with each of these names that maybe we would pray over each one. Uh, God is always willing to answer that prayer, I think, when we say, really show me what you want me to know. And that's a great place to land this conversation with Paul Kent, who's written, Who is Jesus? 66 Great Names and Titles Explained and Applied. Thanks for your time, Paul. Thank you, John. Up next, it's Charlie Dyer with a look at your Bible questions here on The Land and the Book. Variety, they say, is the spice of life, and you're about to hear a lot of variety in questions from listeners just like you here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, and Charlie, it never ceases to amaze me, the variety of uh, questions and curiosity that has piqued the interest of our listeners. You know, it is fascinating, John. Every so often we'll get a, a repeat. Somebody has the same question, but people are looking at the Bible, they're looking at different parts, they're coming from different perspectives mm-hmm. in life, and it produces a lot of different questions, which is fun. Well, speaking of questions, here's one from Jeff. He says, in my daily Bible reading, I've come to the book of Job, been thinking about what we see in chapter one about the power that Satan possesses. The incidents with the oxen and donkey stolen by raiders, the Chaldeans stealing the camels, killing the servants would suggest Satan has power over man to influence the actions of those raiders. And then the incidents with the sheep and servants consumed by fire from the sky, the great wind destroying the house and killing all Job's children. All this make it seem that Satan has power over the forces of nature. What are these passages telling us about the power of Satan? Yeah, I need to start by saying Satan is not omnipotent. In those chapters, before Satan can do anything against Job, he has to receive permission from God. Now, that tells me Satan's power and control are limited. Now, that doesn't mean Satan is a toothless lion. As Peter warns in 1 Peter 5.8, we got to be self-controlled and alert because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
And Revelation 2.10, John says, the ultimate source of the church's persecution will be Satan, though he often works through human agents to accomplish his will. Now, if I put all that together, I do believe Satan has great power and that much of it is exercised through his control and influence over others. Paul describes him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. But unlike God, Satan's power is both limited and temporal. A time is coming when he will be cast first into the abyss in Revelation 20, and then ultimately into the lake of fire. So uh, we need to be careful, we need to be cautious, but we don't need to be terrified of Satan. Rita has an interesting comment here. She says, I've always been taught that the New Testament and church age did not begin until after Jesus was taken up, telling the disciples to go to all nations, and that the book of Acts of the Apostles is the real start of the New Testament. Unfortunately, she says, many people believe the Synoptic Gospels are part of the New Testament and fail to realize that the people in those books were still under the law. I just wanted to point this out. Well, what's your reaction? Well, and I do agree. The church began in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. However, there is a little bit of wiggle room, if you will, when it comes to using the Gospels in the church age. While the events in the life of Jesus did take place prior to the beginning of the church, the books themselves were written after the church had begun. And in that sense, the writers were recounting the events of Christ's life in a way that had application to the church. This is a fine line, but I do think it's important to remember that the church age had already started before the four Gospels were written. Now, here's an illustration I find helpful. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul provides a summary of events that happened to Israel in the wilderness, you know, way back in, in Israel's day. And then he writes, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So Paul saw a link between the events in the book of Numbers and the situation in Corinth in his day. We might need to exercise care in how we use the Old Testament and the Gospels, but they are applicable for us today. Ken says, after he led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, how many times did Moses climb the mountain of God to meet with the Lord? By the way, he adds, I, uh, I certainly enjoyed listening to The Land and the Book on KHCB every Saturday morning. That's out of Houston. Thank you for presenting such an interesting broadcast every week. Yeah, now this might sound confusing. Indeed, it was when I was first corresponding with Ken. I got one of the numbers wrong, and we uh, we, we got it corrected. But here it is. <laughs> I think he went, he went up on that mountain seven separate times. Now, here's how I came up with that number. Trip one, Moses went up to Sinai to meet with God in chapter 19. He then returned to report God's words to the leaders. Then trip two, Moses returned to the Lord on Mount Sinai to report the leader's answer. And then God sent Moses back down to announce his coming arrival. Trip three, Moses is summoned by God back to the top of Mount Sinai and issued a warning to the people not to go to the mountain. Trip four, God summoned Moses and Aaron back to Mount Sinai to receive God's commandments. Trip five, God summoned Moses, Aaron, two of Aaron's sons, and 70 elders of Israel back to the mountain. And it seems like this ascent was only partway up the mountain because God then tells Moses to come up to me to receive the Ten Commandments. Moses was accompanied by Joshua, and he was there 40 days and 40 nights, and then returned to the camp and broke the tablets. Trip six, Moses returned to the Lord to beg for forgiveness for the people. Trip seven, 
We're not told when Moses returned from trip seven, but it must have taken place because God told Moses to prepare a new set of stone tablets and then to be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. When Moses finally came down from the mountain, his face was shining with God's glory. Now, I still can't be dogmatic on the total number of trips because it's sometimes unclear if Moses went all the way up the mountain and then back down or just went part way up. But from the clues in the text, it looks like there are seven separate times when Moses went up on the mountain. He was a busy man on Mount Sinai. Charlie, uh, any kind of a wild guess as to how far up he might have gone, you know, up the mountain? You know, what does that mean? Well, and uh, no, because uh, we don't know for sure even which mountain it is. You know, I've been to uh, Jebel Musa, the traditional site. And if it was that mountain, that's a hike up that mountain. Uh, some people have uh, a different mountain as the possibility, uh, but uh, we're probably talking several thousand feet mm. up, uh, no matter which mountain we're looking at. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert, Old Testament scholar, our host here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and we always welcome your questions. Email us anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Gene says in the RSV Bible, Exodus 12:42 states, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. She then points out that the NIV and Holman versions use the word vigil. Other versions, the KJV and NASB, use the word observance, and this gives the impression that Passover is to be observed. But the idea of a night vigil doesn't stand out. Here's my question. I was wondering which rendering is more accurate. My mind goes to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus asked his disciples to watch with me, Matthew 26, 38. I wondered if this was also a part of the Passover celebration, and that keeping watch late at night was observed by the Jewish people. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, the word used in Exodus 12, 42 is uh, shimmerim, which has the idea of a vigil or a night watch. Uh, so while it could have had the idea of simply keeping watch, the word looks beyond that image to the idea of watching over or protecting the one under your care. I don't know to what extent that was part of the Passover celebration or how it could have influenced the Passover Seder at the time of Jesus, but I would say that it's at least possible. The fifth cup of wine poured during the Passover Seder is known as Elijah's cup. It's left there because in Malachi 3, the return of Elijah is predicted. So perhaps they would keep watch for Elijah to come. But I don't believe we can push this too far since we don't have specific evidence that this was indeed the case, at least uh, at the initial exodus. Lynn writes us saying, a lady in my Bible study asked this question, how can Zechariah be a priest and also Jesus if priests are from the tribe of Levi? Both Zechariah and Jesus are from the tribe of Judah. Yeah, uh, the answer I think is that the Zechariah in question might depend on which one that lady had in mind. Uh, the father of John the Baptist was definitely a priest. Uh, Luke 1.5 provides his genealogy. It says, in the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So both Zechariah and his wife were from the line of Aaron. Now, if that woman is thinking about the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, there also seems to be strong evidence that he was from the priestly line. And I say that because in Zechariah 1, he's described as the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. 
Now, you go, huh, who are they? Yeah. Well, identifying both those individuals, uh, in Nehemiah 12, it begins a genealogical list by saying, these were the priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealdiel, with Yeshua. And then goes on to describe both Ido and Zechariah in verse 16. Now, Berechiah isn't listed, but that might indicate he died at a relatively young age, perhaps before he was able to serve in the temple as a priest. Now, concerning Jesus, it's true. He wasn't from the line of Aaron. But the writer of Hebrews explains how Jesus was able to be our high priest. He became a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6.20 says. The writer goes on then in chapter 7 to explain the priesthood of Melchizedek and how that was superior to Aaron in at least two ways. Aaron paid tithes to Melchizedek, and second, the sacrifice offered by the priests in the line of Aaron didn't permanently take away sin, while the once-for-all sacrifice Jesus did solved the sin problem. You know, I'm intrigued, Charlie, as we uh, comb through the email that comes our way every week, how many listeners are gravitating toward the Land and the Book podcast. And uh, it's a neat way to listen again or to share us with your friends. Check out the podcast at our website, thelandandthebook.org. I'm looking forward to Charlie Dyer's devotional next. Are you? Stick around. It's here on The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book with Middle East expert and author Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's about to open his Bible and take us to the very last book, Revelation. That in a moment, but first, we thought it might be good to get one more perspective from a traveler who's been to the Holy Land, how their life is different as a result of traveling to Israel. Listen to this. Hello, my name is John Perzee. I'm from Cedar Lake, Indiana and came here with Charlie Dyers on this Holy Land trip. And I will tell you, the Old Testament has come alive. All the stories that we've heard since we were knee-high to a grasshopper are just fantastic when you start to walk through the land and you realize here was David and Goliath, here was Samson and Delilah, and here was David as a shepherd boy and all of these things is just fantastic. Then we get to Jerusalem, and we see where Jesus rode in on the triumphal entry, and he just sobbed over the city because they were lost. And then we get to see where Jesus walked and where he taught, and it's just a great experience. I'd uh, suggest it highly to anyone that is uh, looking for an experience to, to walk closer with the Lord. Revelation is famous for its letters to the seven churches. What the Lord said to the church at Ephesus is the first in a new series of devotionals Charlie starts with today. Charlie? Ah, Thanks, John. Yeah, pack your bags for an extended journey. Over the next seven weeks, we're heading to Turkey to visit the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, today, our cruise ship is docking at the resort town of Kushadasa for our 18-mile bus ride to Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city in Bible times, nestled where the Castros River emptied into the Aegean Sea, but the mouth of the river silted up. Today, the ruins of the city are three and a half miles inland. So we need to use our imagination to picture what Ephesus was like during the latter half of the first century when the sea extended right to the edge of the city. 
On our drive up the modern highway, we passed the spot where the Temple of Artemis, also known by her Roman name, Diana, was located. A single column rising in the field is all that remains to identify the site from the highway. It's hard to imagine this temple was selected by Herodotus as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, while the Parthenon in Athens didn't make that list. The building must have been spectacular. Some of its columns were later carried to Constantinople and used in the construction of the Hagia Sophia Church, where they still stand today. The sheer size of Ephesus dwarfed every other city on the eastern side of the Roman Empire. 250,000 people lived in the city itself, with thousands more in the surrounding towns and villages. Villas clinging to the city's hillsides boasted running water, working toilets, and rooms with colorful frescoed paintings on the walls. But perhaps the most impressive and enduring monument to the city's grandeur was the theater carved into the hillside facing the harbor, a theater that could seat 25,000. Imagine what it would have been like to dock at the harbor on the day the silversmiths rioted against the Apostle Paul. For two solid hours, the surrounding mountains reverberated to the sound of the mob in the theater, shouting in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And that gives us pause. What is it about the church in this city that allowed it to survive and thrive in spite of the opposition it faced? It withstood external threats from this frenzied mob. And later, it survived the internal threat of doctrinal error, which proved to be an even greater danger. As Paul wrote in his letter to young Timothy, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. The church was threatened with false teaching, and Paul was concerned enough to ask his own protege to take charge of the situation. And it appears Timothy was able to help the church overcome this internal threat. But the church that had successfully withstood physical persecution and false teaching faced its greatest threat three decades later. And this threat was so grave that Jesus himself sent the church a letter of warning. And his words are found in Revelation 2 verses 1 to 7. Jesus began by acknowledging the successes of this church. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. He commended them for their perseverance and doctrinal fidelity. They were faithful and true, two admirable qualities. But the church faced a third danger, one that had quietly crept in and taken hold and it was as serious a threat as the previous two, perhaps even more so. The church had been so busy responding to these other dangers that, in their zeal, they had allowed relationships to slip. Jesus said it this way, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Evidently, the church in Ephesus had memorized all the right answers, but were neglecting the one to whom those answers pointed. They were so busy working for Jesus that they had no time to build a relationship with Jesus. They were orthodox in their beliefs, but those beliefs had become mere head knowledge, divorced from the heart. And as a result, this church was in danger of losing its very reason to exist. Well, here we are back on our bus, ready to return to our ship and sail to Smyrna, 
the next stop on our journey. But as we get ready to leave, what life lessons can we take with us from the ruins of this magnificent city? I'd like to suggest the following. The Christian life is like a three-legged stool, and each leg is essential to maintain balance. One leg is truth, one is faithfulness, and the third is love. The Ephesians still believed the truth of God's Word, and they were still faithfully living by the standards God had established in His Word. But they had reduced the Christian life to nothing more than rote memory and going-through-the-motions kind of actions. And through it all, they had lost the love relationship with Jesus that was the essence of the Christian life itself. Don't get me wrong. What you believe does matter. And faithfulness is important. But the engine that energizes and drives both must be love. Rules are no substitute for a relationship with Jesus. That relationship, grounded in love, is essential for everything else. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus ended each of his seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 with an application that extended beyond that church to encompass all churches through the ages. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. His point is simple. If you have the physical ability to hear his words, then you also have the moral responsibility to take those words to heart. And his message for you today is to put your relationship with him above all else. Make sure you're still in love with Jesus. You know, Charlie, as I'm sitting here listening to you uh, share from Revelation, I'm struck by the similarity between our relationship with Jesus and our relationship, say, with our spouse, my wife. You know, it does take attention. It does take time. It does take work. It does indeed. Uh, uh, Those kind of relationships have to be built. They don't just happen. We'll we'll look forward to your next installment in this series as we head to Smyrna next week on our devotional slot. And if by chance you have never, ever visited our website, you're kind of missing out. TheLandAndTheBook.org is your connection to a number of important links that I think will help you get more benefit out of the program. First of all, you can hear it all again, anytime, any program. Play it again, Sam, there at the website, TheLandAndTheBook.org. Also there, information about every guest we ever have on. You'll get a sneak peek at what's coming up ahead, or maybe there's a program or two that you missed. You can go backward as well. Links there to Charlie Dyer's books, my book as well at thelandandthebook.org. And we'd love it if you'd send us an email. Let us know how the program is connecting with you. Uh, Maybe as you've listened, it happens to be that you're going through a Sunday school lesson, or maybe you're a pastor and and there's something you're preaching on and, and something has sort of opened up for you. Why don't you share that in a letter? You can email us at thelandandthebook at Moody. .edu. You notice I use that word letter for an email? It's okay. Letter, email, it's all good. Address the same, the land and the book at moody.edu. And while you're in the email kind of mood, why not write the management at this station? You know, they've got a lot of pressure, a lot of choices out there for programs all vying for airtime, and, and they have kindly made room for the land and the book. Would you thank them? Would you let them know that you listen? Would you let them know how much it means to you to have the land and the book on? Thanks for doing that. On behalf of our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our producer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger, thanking you for listening and thanking this station for providing airtime for The Land of the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.